0: We like the soft teachings of Jesus, you know, the ones about not judging and the ones about loving your neighbor and doing unto others, but, you know, we, 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 sometimes we tend to forget that Jesus had some very hard things to say, too. He, had a, he was very strict and very demanding at times, and all of that, if we take Jesus historically as He is, as the Bible reveals Him to be, then we take all of it, not just the easy, we take the hard, not just the stuff that's comforting, we also take the stuff that's offending us because we, we believe that the entire message of Scripture is for us. So, but we're going to be looking at um, uh, some of the parables of Jesus. As I said, a third of all of His teaching was done in parables. Some of these are very universally known. This last week, I had uh, an MRI done following my car accident, um, and I went to a place called um, Good Samaritan Hospital in downtown Lexington. Anybody ever heard of that? I actually didn't go to the hospital. I went to the diagnostic next to it. But good to, If you ask anybody on the street, what is Good Samaritan, 99% of the people are going to know what that means. Good Samaritan. There's hospitals named that. That's a parable of Jesus. That's a, a story told by a, 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 a you know Jewish rabbi in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. And we're naming hospitals after his parable. It's pretty impressive. And some of the and some of the parables are very easy to miss because at an initial glance they're not like they're not real theological, you know, like, like Romans would be. You know, Romans is sort of like this big, juicy theological stake, and you have to chew your way through it. And at an initial glance, the parables are, are very easy to miss. You know, we might think of them as little donut holes in the back. Walk by and pick one up and grab it and go on your way and not really see it as, as revelation, but it is. And the parables, they hold the key to understanding who Jesus is and what His mission is. And I, I want to understand that more. I don't know about you, but I do. I want to know as much as I can about Jesus. I love him and I want to love him more. And whatever he has to say, I want to understand it. You know, even if it seems insignificant, nothing that Jesus said was insignificant. He didn't waste words, right? Like I do. I waste words. Probably wasted a bunch today already, but Jesus didn't. Whatever he says is like meaningful. So I want to do that. Let me give you a real, uh, some sort of, we're going to move through this kind of quickly. Real quick, why did Jesus teach in parables? Let me give you three reasons why I think he did. First of all, they were very easy to remember. Um, and Jesus was not the first to teach in parables. It was, very, it was a common method of the day for other rabbis to do because this was, a, this was often a, a, a um, I don't want to say uneducated, but it certainly wasn't a, a, the way that you and I think of writing things down and making notes. This was a, 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 um, a culture that learned auditorially. So, Jesus and other rabbis, they would go along, and they would want to teach some of their, um, you know, some of their doctrines, some of their thoughts, So they would think, what's the easiest way? Oh, well, let's tell a story, and they would do that, and that's what a parable would be. Would be uh, it's one of the story, and I, I began to think one day, I was thinking, if Jesus were here today, what kind of parables would he come up with, right? And he used, in his day, he used a lot of farmer language you know, like a you know, mustard seed and, a, you know, scattering seeds and planting and those kind of things. We're not so much an agrarian culture anymore, but what if Jesus were here, I begin to think of maybe he would say something like this, the kingdom of God is like a hundred dollar bill dirty and crumpled and laying in the gutter. It seems worthless, but you pick it up and invest it in a high yield mutual fund and it becomes a king's fortune. Am I wrong? That's, I can see Jesus using that parable. Or the kingdom of God is like a shot of morphine. It goes in one spot, but its power courses through every part of the body. I can see Jesus using like drug kind of analogies for the kingdom, you know. Or the kingdom of God is like, uh, like a Texas cattle ranch that's laden with undiscovered oil. And somebody comes and discovers that and leverages his entire net worth to buy that ranch up. Maybe if Jesus were teaching in Texas, he would use a parable like that. Whatever it is, he would use sort of the common ideas of the day to communicate theological truths, and they were very easy to remember. So the second thing, the second reason that he did is that it can convey many different truths all at the same time. For example, we talked about the Good Samaritan. I would ask you, what is the point of the Good Samaritan? Well, honestly, there's probably several different levels and layers to to what that's about. We could say that the the point of that parable is the condition of humanity. In other words, all of us are broken on the side of the road, being beat up by life, and we need somebody to come and help us. You could say the parable is about that. Or you could say, no, it really is not about that. It really is about the hypocrisy of religious people today, about how they ignore the plight of the wounded and they go on their way to church. Maybe you're right. It could be about that. You know, or we could say, no, really, the, 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 the parable of the Good Samaritan is about, uh, you know, it's about crossing over boundaries, crossing over cultural boundaries and, and sort of, you know, reaching out to people that we're not comfortable with. And to a degree, all of those to some effect are true and correct. That's the beauty of parables. They can be very they can be multi-layered. The third thing, is, and this is what I want to zero in on, they both conceal and reveal at the same time. For some people in Jesus' audience, they would just come and they love to hear these clever stories and they wouldn't think much about them. They would come, and they would listen to these, and, and, um, and, and Jesus would sort of tell the, the parable, and they would think, oh, that's really clever, and that's really interesting, and they would maybe if there was a meal being served, loaves and fishes, they heard about that. They're all for that. They're going to hang around and see. But for others, they knew that there was something even deeper. For example, this is what it says in Matthew 13, that's where we're going to be. So Matthew 13 begins with him telling. It begins this way, and it should be on the screen behind us if I, if I did it correctly and entered him in. It begins this way. It says, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables. So this is how he began to teach, and in chapter 13 records some of these. So he he tells one parable, this parable about the farmer who sows seeds, and it lands on this different kind of, of, of soil. And at the end of it, it says this in verse 10, he says, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to people in parables? They come up and ask him, Jesus, why are you doing this? This is very cryptic, you're teaching. Why can't you just say, this is what you know, God wants for us and this is what we need to do? But instead, you're telling this weird story about throwing seeds out and all these different kinds of ground. And why are you doing this? And Jesus tells him, he says, he replied in verse 11, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Okay, I'm offended already. I don't know about you, right? I'm offended by that. What do you mean? Jesus like choosing some people to receive the secrets and not others? He says, whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. He goes on to quote Isaiah. And after this, he then explains what that particular parable means to them. So, Jesus is very aware that, that the nature of His teaching is going to sort of, some people are going to get it, some people are not going to get it. But He makes it clear that it's not a matter of intellect. He's not talking, you know, really abstract theological things. He's just saying that the ones who want to get it are going to get it. The ones who are hungry to understand my teaching will dig in and find what it means. And the ones who have hard hearts, they're not going to get it. This is why I teach in parables. So the parables then, so they both conceal and reveal. The parables then answer a key question. What is the kingdom all about? What is the king all about? Because that's what Jesus came to proclaim. Everywhere he went, he talks, he's talking about the kingdom. He's saying this is, this is, you know, I've come to proclaim it, I've come to, to inaugurate it. So his parables are teaching this is what the kingdom is all about. This is what it's really like. And, and many of these, including the ones in today or in the series for the next several weeks are going to begin with these words, the kingdom is like, dot, dot, dot. And he wants people to understand this. This is the kingdom that I'm bringing to earth. And there, there's, there's several themes then that, that he kind of, Paints for us. He talks about that. What is the kingdom like? Um, he says it's a lot of, uh, the kingdom is like lavish grace. The king is full of lavish grace. So We tell some parables about that. You know, the, the parable of, of the lost coin or the lost sheep or the lost son. All of those three together, those are just telling us who the king is like. It's not about the coin, it's not about the sheep, it's really not about the prodigal son, it really is about the father, it's about the one who is looking for all of those, one who is looking for the coin, and looking for the sheep, and looking for the son, so this is lavish grace. They also tell us that the kingdom has sort of this expansive, invasive nature, you know, like like yeast, you ever made bread with yeast in it? Sometimes we make it at home, once in a while, Meg will make some, some homemade bread, or we'll make pizza dough, and like, we'll have this flour in there, we'll put water in, and we'll take like a quarter, maybe an eighth of a teaspoon of little tiny granules that look weird. You know, when you kind of throw them in there and turn it over and we come back 15 minutes later and the whole thing is like <laughs> overflowing in the bowl. Tiny things become very invasive. They take over, they expand. In many of his parables, he's saying that's how the kingdom is. It starts small, but it just explodes everywhere you go. And and some of his parables then also talk about a day of decision. They give a challenge. They say the time is coming when the the good and the bad will be separated. There's a a time of judgment coming when God is going to separate the sheep from the wolves or the wheat from the chaff or the righteous from the unrighteous. And a lot of his parables are very judgmental. They're very hard. They, They sort of come down and say the time is coming when God will judge us. So it's this sort of the day of decision. And finally, a lot of them talk about um, the idea of of, of the immeasurable worth of the kingdom. And that's the two that we're going to look at today here in chapter 13. So I want to read these to us. They're they're very short. They're very easy to miss. Um, But let's skip over to to verse 44 and 45. And in chapter 13, he gives us seven different parables. And we're just going to look at two of these. And some of them he explains, some of them he doesn't explain. We're going to land just on these two very small, very short ones right here. And here's the first one in verse 44. The kingdom of, of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. There's one. Here's the next one, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I love, I love looking for um, just like things in, in like junk stores or Goodwill. Once in a while, I'll go to Goodwill. You guys ever go to Goodwill, right? I, I don't have the patience to look through clothes, Although once in a while I found like some really awesome, really nice ties for $1.50 each, and I bought like all of them. But usually I don't have the patience. Usually what I'll do is I'll go to the books, because I love books, and they're always cheap, like a dollar. And you know, I'm always kind of on the look, and I don't know a lot about antique books, but I know an old book when I see one, and I'm always on the lookout for one. And one time I found like this Pulitzer first edition Pulitzer Prize book from the 70s and I bought it for like $1.50, and I got online and like, you know, looked at how much it was being sold for, and it was being sold for like $700 if it was in good condition. And it wasn't, but I was like, oh my word, I found this awesome thing. You know, and you hear stories about people finding priceless paintings in their attics or in their junk stores. Am I wrong? And I'll flip through. If I'm at Goodwill, I'll kind of flip through. Maybe I'll see like the hidden Monet, or you know, I'll find like a signed Degas or something in here that somebody just didn't notice about. And here's the thing. Um, or, or maybe you're a bargain shopper and you love to go to those places like, like um, Bargain Hunt, you know, and I won't point any fingers. Um, oh, sorry, something wrong with my hand. But if you've ever gone there, one time we found this, we found like a Vitamix box at Bargain Hunt, you know, and if you know anything about Vitamix mixers, they're like $500 and we found one for like $150 and we were so excited until we took open and realized that the box had like something else stuck in there but how many of you have done this? How many of you have found something of immense sale and immense value at one of these places? You know, like at Bargain Hunt or Goodwill or at the department store and it's such an amazing deal and you didn't have the right amount of money with you because you forgot your checkbook or you didn't have the cash and what did you do with it? Don't lie. You hit it. Come on. That's what I do. I've done that before. I found something there. I was like, all right, I'm not putting this up on the shelf. I'm going to like the back of the store, the last aisle, down at the bottom. I'm like moving stuff out of the way, hiding it back here. You know what I'm saying? And I'm going to run home and get my wallet or get my money or get whatever it is. I is. I'm to come back and nobody better have touched that. Oh, so help me, God. I will rain down the fire. And that's kind of what this is, these two are very much like that, the immeasurable worth. So here's, there's two things that we're going we're gonna to nail in this series each week. One of them is the point of the parable, and the next one is the power of the parable. A whole lot of P's in there, I know, I wasn't trying to do that. Here's the point of the parable is this, the kingdom of heaven is much more than it seems. All right, no amens there, y'all, come on. The kingdom of heaven is much more than it seems. It may escape the notice of men, but it's coming in force. That's true. And when it comes, its value and weight and power and substance will eclipse everything. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that there is something that seems so insignificant right now, but when you find it, it will change your life forever. He says that's what the kingdom of, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like. So there's two challenge points. Here's the, that was the point of the parable. Y'all write that down? No, you didn't. Don't lie. Come on. Lynn did. I heard. I see you're writing over That's the point of the parable. Here's the power of the parable. Two application points for us. The first is this. The kingdom gives ultimate meaning and value to our lives. If you are wondering, what gives ultimate meaning and value to my life? I was wondering that this morning. I got an answer for you. Guess what it is? It ain't this church. Can I get an amen on that? This church cannot give you ultimate value and meaning. The person next to you can't give you ultimate value and meaning. The money in your wallet, if you have any, will not give you ultimate. The car that's out there waiting for you, the house that's waiting for you, whatever you're doing tomorrow at 8 o'clock in the morning for the rest of the week, that cannot give you ultimate value and meaning. Only one thing can, says Jesus. The kingdom of God gives you ultimate value and meaning. And he says it's worth every cost. Look what it says here in verse 44. It talks about that. It talks about the guy. He says he, has a, he says, a man finds this treasure in a field, I don't know. He finds it. Maybe he's plowing and like he's renting it, but it says that he just finds it. Look at what he says. It says. He buries it again. I love this. That's what I would do. I'm looking around going, anybody see me? I'm putting this thing back in the ground. I'm covering it over. And he goes on. But it says this. He says, in, in his joy, y'all say joy. In his joy, he went and sold everything. Think about that for a minute. Anybody just filled with joy at the thought of selling everything you got? No, I don't want to. I don't want to sell everything I've got. I've worked hard for what I have, worked hard for my farm and whatever I have there and my my car and all not The thought of selling it all does not fill me with joy unless there's something far more greater that I can exchange it for. What if I could? And And the man in this parable realizes this he realizes that there's something of such ins- some, some immeasurable worth and value, and it's mine for the taking. I just have to sacrifice what little I have to take it. That fills him with joy. I watched a TV show one time about this poor family struggling. You know, maybe, I don't remember now, maybe it was a, like a, a widowed mom of five or six kids, and they're living in this just dilapidated, run-down house. You know, the plumbing is broken. The heater doesn't work. Uh, there's just, it's just one thing. And this is sort of this documentary, you know, this crew following this family around. And as, the, as it turns out, this house is about to be bulldozed. They're about to bring in the dozers and the wrecking crew, and they're about to just bring this to the ground. The most amazing thing is that the family, in interviewing them on this, were ecstatic about this prospect. They're thrilled that their house is coming down. Because honestly, the show is something called Extreme Makeover: Home Edition. If you ever watch that show, you'll realize that that's what they do. They tear down one home, and they come in and they build something even better. And if you ever watch, it, it's such a powerful show. And you know, like you know, so they'll interview this family, and they'll they'll you know, re- they'll they'll bring people in and say, we're gonna we're gonna send you on vacation. We're gonna tear your house down, but when you come back move that truck, and they move the truck out of the way, and like there's this house of their dreams that's there, and everybody's crying, and I'm like crying on the couch, and I'm like elbowing Meg, and she's like, I know, I see it, and it's just the most amazing thing in the world. Why? Because we're giving up something that is, is, is so of less value, and we're getting something of such immeasurably great value in return. That's the kingdom of God, and look what Paul says. Paul says this in, uh, in Philippians 3. Paul knows what this is about. I can get over to it. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence, confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I've got more. If any of you think you've got a great resume, Paul says, I've got you beat. Listen to this, says Paul. "Sir, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'll tell him to take a message. All right. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, I've got the perfect pedigree. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was like the upper class of people who kept the law. As for zeal, I was leading the way and kicking down doors and dragging people off, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, says Paul, I was faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And Paul says there is something that is giving ultimate meaning and value to my life. That's the first challenge point. It gives ultimate meaning and value to your life. And here's the second point. And it must be pursued at any cost. At any cost. And if the, if the kingdom of God right now, today, is not the defining reality of your life, Jesus says, keep digging. There's treasure there. Keep digging. Don't give up. There's more power, says Jesus. There's more intimacy. There's more love, there's more wisdom, there's more revelation waiting for you in the kingdom of God. There's more transformation. And he says this later on. He says, he's talking, he's teaching in, 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 in Matthew 6. And he makes this very simple statement. He says, after all these teachings, he says, y'all know this, many of you will, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I want to see if I have time to tell a quick story about that. Okay, real quick. So, several years back, a, a, a pastor, mentor friend of mine told me this, what I'm about to tell you. So, it's not, I didn't come up with this. But he says he was reading this one da- one time, looking this up, this idea of seeking first. And he was a Greek reading it in the Greek, you know, which is kind of what some people do. and. Um, he said, that word, that word first means proton. That's the Greek word proton. And he says, I went and looked this thing up in my Kittles Greek dictionary, pulled it off the shelf, flipped it open, read through, and sure enough, there's proton. And he said, Brad, you'll never guess what it meant. I'm like waiting for this revelation. I'm like, what? What does it mean? He said, it means first. I was like, well, yeah, I could have told you that. He said, actually, I I read all of that through, and it says that proton in the New Testament means first, and had another paragraph, until the very end, it said this, except for one instance in Matthew 6, where proton should be understood to mean not first, but only. Oh, and he said, that changed my life. And i got to tell you, you and me, that changed my life. Now I read that as not seek first, but seek only. And here's why. I talked about this, you know, English teachers. You know how you have outlines. You have A, and then you have B, and you have C and D, and then under A are some things. You know what I'm talking about? That's the right way to. And I was taught you never have an A if you don't have a B and a C and a D. That's a faulty outline. But in the kingdom of God, there is an A, and it's kingdom of God. And there is no B. And I, I think I've had that backward all my life. I would have God appear as A, but then B would be like family, and C would be, you know, um, job or career, as if once I gave God his due, once I kind of met that expectation, I could kind of go on and give attention to these other things. They begin to realize that the kingdom is A, and there is no B. There is no C. There is, there's, there's a one, but there's no number two. There's the kingdom of God, and then underneath that, there's like another little bullet point is my family and my marriage and my future and my finances and all these other things. All of that lines up under the supremacy of the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I love missionary stories. Have you heard, there's a movie that came out a few years ago called The End of the Spear. Have you heard of that? The story of a guy named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a graduate of uh, Wheaton College back in the 40s. Very intelligent. Had a had a had a sort of this this you know he, he had a trajectory heading towards being a scholar and being all these other kind of things is very articulate but he also had a call for the mission field and he wanted to go on the mission field so badly and he knew that God was calling him to to visit um, a tribe of Indians called the Aka Indians in I believe Ecuador I think if I'm wrong Lisa tell me if I'm wrong on that seems like it's right <laughs> you're you're our, you're our resident missiologist right here right so he's, and he's taken some trips down there but he also knows this is it this is what I want to do and in his journals published later on, it tells sort of his struggle with this. You know, do I take this path here, which is the American way, and he said, I can do good things by going on and getting other education and get a good job, and I can have a family, I can be married, or, you know, do I do this? Do I go to this unreached tribe that's never heard the gospel and face whatever that road leads to? And he makes that decision. He and several friends, and they board a plane in the early 50s, I believe, and they fly um, into the jungles And if you watch the movie, you know the story that um, it really wasn't several moments or hours later that they were killed on the beach after landing their plane at the end of the spear by the Aka Indians. And the story is a, is a great ending, honestly. It's like some of his wife goes back, and some of the other people go back and convert the Aka Indians, and there's this powerful story of God's redemption. But later on, in his journals, as they're published, he be, you know, it gives a little bit of an insight into to what's happening, and he wrestles with this. And later on, he makes this statement that's very, sort of, it's impacted me for years. He says, he, says, he is no fool, talking about himself, who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he knew this is really, when it comes down to it, this is not a choice at all. I can say yes to the kingdom, and I've gained everything. I can't really keep on, hang on to this anyway. It must be pursued at any cost. Why did Christ die? The simplest answer is to save you from your sins. That's not untrue. But ultimately, he died to give you the kingdom of God as a gift from the Father. He died as the door to bring you into that, to bring you into the kingdom. His reward is for you to receive, to seize upon, to join your life for this cause Guys in the back, come on up. We're gonna move into some ministry time here. So I just, I've got just, I'm, I have a, a sort of a closing challenge, closing question, that's all. What have you found worth giving your life for? What have you found worth giving your life for, not giving your Sunday mornings for? I hope it isn't a, Church program. I hope you're not banking on this church being something that you want to give your life for. I hope it isn't a religious tradition. I hope it isn't just sort of just this generic spirituality, you know, where we believe things and check them off. Because Christ offers us the fullness of the kingdom, but He doesn't make it easy. He doesn't say, I'm just going to give it to you and you guys just do your best on earth. He says it's something that has to be seized. It's something that has to be dug out of the ground, not worked for, but taken and accepted and received. Y'all stand up. We're going to pray here in a moment. We're going to move into some ministry time as well. But let me just challenge you that, that, that if the answer to that question that I just asked you is, I don't know. I don't know what I have that's worth giving my life for. Let me tell you right now, at our very first time in this place, the kingdom of God is worth giving your life for. The king and the kingdom are worth everything. If you've never sort of made that shift in your mind, that decision in your mind, this is a great day to do it. I'd love to talk to you about that. Megan would love it. Anybody with a card here would love to talk to you about that. Because it changes everything it does. It's like finding the most valuable thing in the world and realizing what you're missing out on. And if you haven't done that yet, when you do, it's going to just blow your mind wide open. Amen? Those of you that are in the kingdom, do you know what I'm talking about? It's just beyond imagination how beautiful and valuable it is. And it's yours today. It's mine today. It's what Jesus offers to us. All right? father son holy spirit we we have found in you everything we have found in your kingdom everything it's treasure worth everything to us and we'll give it all up for this lord because what we have is worthless it's worthless rubbish compared to the beauty of your kingdom. So, Lord, help us just to dig in, if we've not found that, to dig in, to receive what you're, what you're offering to us. Mm. Holy Spirit, tune us, Lord. Tune our hearts. Tune them. Adjust them, Lord, just to be so in sync with you and who you are and what you're doing, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.